Lauren Bennett is the 2021 Judith Nielsen Foundation Sustainable Futures John Monash Scholar. She studied for a Bachelor of Biomedicine in Neuroscience and a Bachelor of Commerce in Economics at the University of Melbourne. She's also completed a Master of Philosophy in Economics at the University of Oxford. As part of her John Monash Foundation scholarship, Lauren is currently part of a cross-disciplinary ecological brain PhD program at the University College London. Lauren, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So you're currently back in Australia, but I understand you're actually flying back to the UK tonight. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, I've got a midnight flight, so just packing in everything before I go back. Have you got everything ready? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so how long were you out um, back out in Australia for? I've been here for two months, which is, is actually nice. It's the first time I've been back properly since... Uh, since the pandemic. Been, it's been a long time and it's nice to see things kind of looking relatively normal as well and, and people out and about. It's really nice to see. And did you, have you got family in, in Australia, in Melbourne? Did you catch up with your family? Yeah, I do. I have both of my parents are in Melbourne. Um, so it was good to see them as well. Okay, so I'm going to presume that you grew up in, in Melbourne, Victoria. I'm keen to know how it all started for you. No, I actually grew up in, in Perth. We moved to Melbourne when for, for high school, but um, yeah, no, most of my childhood was spent in Perth, which is... In the Wild West. In the Wild West, yeah, exactly. 300 days of sun a year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then you went to Melbourne. Yeah, and then I went to London, so it's going downhill. <laughs> Um, it, yeah, but definitely Melbourne is home and Melbourne feels like home and it's nice to come back and sort of remember that there is a home and that everything is kind of the same. Not much has changed. So tell us about the PhD that you're doing in, in the UK. Let's get into the details there. The PhD program is, is kind of one of a kind and, and that kind of speaks to UCL, um, as an, as an incredibly progressive, but also a very interdisciplinary uni and, um, I didn't necessarily want to do a PhD until I saw the program and the ethos behind the program. Um, and it is really something quite special. It's um, essentially built upon neuroscience. That's like the theme for the program. Um, but it wants an emphasis on neuroscience being more translatable, what they call more ecological. Essentially, they're just kind of a bit sick of putting people in scanners because of how unrealistic that is. Not only in terms of our behavior, but also um, the the signals that are generated within these really restrictive environments. So it's all about trying to bring neuroscience into the wild and um, to sort of become a bit more ecologically valid is the term. What is neuroscience? Oh, <laughs> so it's it's the study of 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 the brain um, and the nervous system. So it's it's something that's boomed probably in the past 50 to 100 years mm -hmm. um, because of two main advances both in in the recording technology so we're much better able to record from brains and we now have the computational capabilities to handle the um the enormous amounts of data that, that come out of brains and are you working as part of a, a, a team there or are you you're doing that on your own yeah yeah so i'm part of very very lucky to be part of um one of the one of the biggest labs in UCL and uh, in UCL neuroscience, which is unique because it's one of the only labs that's half experimental and half computational. So 
half of the lab is doing rat recording. So we're implanting uh, rats with neuropixel drives and probes to read their brains while they're running around or doing activities. Um, and the yes. other half of us who can't stand the sight of blood or surgery, we are using those neural recordings to build AI models, to build neural networks, and also to understand, try and understand what the brain is actually doing. And what side of the fence are you on there? Oh, I'm, I'm computational. Absolutely. I, I can't stand the sight of blood. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that strange for a would-be neuroscientist who gets a bit funny with the side of blood? Not at all. And there's actually quite a big divide between computational and experimental, which is why the lab is, is special. We're the only one that has both. But <laughs> the computational room is next to the labs. And whenever <laughs> the experimentals, actually, they do it quite often. They just come in with the rats unannounced and you'll just turn around and there'll be one. <laughs> Right. No. Do it to scare us because they know how much we. I hang. bet. It doesn't sound like fun. No, no, it's it's good. It's a very very uh, tight knit team. Lauren, what sparked your interest in this field of study? Uh, I, it's quite been quite serendipitous. I the the biomed degree that I did in Melbourne um, was specialising in neuroscience, but honestly, I, I only chose neuroscience because it was the only one that you didn't have to do. You know lab work and yes i think i was just traumatized from the anatomy classes i just didn't want anything <laughs> to do with it <laughs> and neuroscience you didn't have to get your hands dirty or see mm. um but it's it's kind of led me to ai which is just you know i guess serendipitously in the past few years taken off um and the center that we're at in ucl is placed you know better than any any neuro ai center in the world. We work very closely with DeepMind and um, Gatsby and other leading institutions for neuro AI. Um, mm. So it's just been quite fortunate, I guess, that it's ended up in such a happening place. Have you experimented with chat GPT yet? I'm kind of biased against it because when I work, I worked for Oxford for some other language models, the yes. the Google models. Yes. So I'm trying to resist jumping on the chat GPT bandwagon because I'm more of a, a Google kind of girl. A Google but, kind of girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they went to press recently with that and uh, had a bit of a wobble with their I share price. Well, how embarrassing. I know. <laughs> well, look, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll sort that out. What are you hoping to achieve through your PhD and your thesis? What's the end goal in all of this? I'd love to get the PhD. Um, beyond that. Come on. Of course, that'll happen. That'll, <laughs> that'll happen. happen. I think that there is... It's not unreasonable in this field to have the ambition of discovering something quite new. Neuroscience is is um, an incredibly open field. There's only a very few number of things that we know for certain. Um, and so there's, there is opportunity all the time for people to discover something. So I think it would be nice to make a small, meaningful and original contribution to to our stock of knowledge of neuroscience. And if everything goes to plan, when do you hope to finish your studies there? It should be end of 2025, which is really scary to think about. A long way away. <laughs> it's still a long way away. Do you do it full time? Give us a sort of a, a day in the life of Lauren when you're on campus doing your work. Is it Monday to Friday? You're working weekends? Is it part time? What's um, What's involved? 
It is. It is. It's a full time. And our supervisor, who is incredible, he, we do have a slogan, science never sleeps. And we... <laughs> Um, it's more of a joke, but the uh, the experimentalists will need to be in there all the time. Um, if they, especially if they have rats that are implanted or they are, you know, performing surgery or recording on them, that will go through weekends on Christmas. You just need to make sure that the you're getting the recordings. Computational, we're sort of <laughs> much more relaxed, but it it is still probably nine to six. But the nice thing about about computational and the field that we work in is just kind of whenever the inspiration strikes, um, which to be honest happens a lot at the pub. Um, <laughs> just kind of like mulling over a problem and like, why is this not working? And then, you know, 11 p.m., we all figure it out and then like run back to the lab and, and implement the code. So it, just, it happens when you're feeling it and we all go through weeks where just, you know, we, we can't get the code to work or we're just not happy with it. And it's fine to just see people walking around with ice creams, looking a bit frustrated because, you know, they've hit a wall with their code. So it sounds like you're describing that scene from when they when they cracked the Enigma code. <laughs> oh, my God, no, it's not anything. It's glamorous. It's not like that. No. <laughs> it's a few underfed PhD students at the pub um, <laughs> getting, getting a, few good, a few good ideas. Solving the world's problems over a few cheeky pints of beer. Exactly. That's where all good science happens. I think so. So who's your, who's your supervisor? So my primary supervisor is Caswell Barry, who is um, a very successful neuroscientist. Um, at UCL and my secondary supervisor is Professor Tim Behrens who is more of a computational neuroscientist from Oxford so the program also um, requires us to have supervisors from different departments Mm. which is what makes um, the PhD so special so in our first year of the program we rotate between three different labs and we can choose those labs from any literally any lab in UCL. It could be in architecture, in engineering, in computer science, whatever you want. And then you choose and you kind of build your own PhD project across different faculties. And that's what you work on for the next three years. So you're surrounded by brainiacs. Yeah, but it's it's crazy because we've we've all come from such like literally such different backgrounds. I know that's a bit trite, but we're all I mean, there's a woman in our program who's designing the optimal sound for alarms. Um which <laughs> 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 is wild to think about because when you find the optimal sound, you're like, do you just you just do like that? to speak to her, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um and we have architects, we have um, quite a lot of uh, people working on human neuroscience. Um, so, yeah, you can just go wild and explore whatever you want, and they want us to do that. Have you made some nice some nice friends over there? Yeah, yeah. It's all about, I think, finding, finding your place in academia is, is so important um, because the, the, the connections with the lab and the PI are very kind of strange. It's not like colleagues. We're much more like friends because we're not employed I guess together we're employed on our own right um but it's was so important to find a a lab and a supervisor Mm. that you kind of connect with and and now the people in my lab are definitely you know my family we see each other 
literally all the time. Um, so <laughs> we've, we've, we've got to get along, but we do. <laughs> What's the campus like? Um, yeah, I was a bit reticent to go to UCL because it's because it's in London and because it's like right in the center of London and yes um it's it is overwhelming and it it does go all the time especially around the uni um but it's it's an incredible like buzz I guess especially when the undergrads are in it's Mm -hmm. nothing like Melbourne or or Sydney because it's it's so so landlocked and so dense that they build, you know, seven floors down and up, and you're just you're literally <laughs> on top of you, you. I mean, the conversations you can overhear when you're walking around, and the people you bump into are just it's un it's unbelievable. You know, it's not uncommon for us to we work with uh, John O'Keefe, who's obviously one of the Nobel laureates in neuroscience, um, and he often just like walking around the corridor you see him getting his coffee and he won't even be the only Nobel laureate at the coffee shop so it's 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 intense but it kind of keeps you on your toes and you gotta you gotta look busy (laughs) there's nowhere to hide so let's go back Lauren to when you first applied for the scholarship I'm keen to know what made you interested in that and talk us through the process of applying and then finding out that you actually got the John Monash Foundation scholarship yeah, yeah, that was a wild time. It was a uh, peak pandemic in in the UK. Um, so I was stuck in in Oxford. Um, obviously, Australia had shut the borders. Um, it was sort of mid to late twenty twenty, um, and was just kind of like, what do I do next? Like the world was just like. Just no one knew what was going on. No one knew. Yeah, you, you weren't alone there. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And um, I'd obviously seen this PhD program and thought, oh my god, that that looks incredible. Um, but obviously, you know, funding is only available for. Uh, it was EU, but then after Brexit, just just British students. So I was looking at Australian scholarships, and obviously, the first one that comes to mind is is the John Monash and also the Rhodes and. The more I kind of investigated and looked at the website and read the testimonies from the other Monashes and actually spoke to some Monashes as well, it just became clear that the ethos of the Monash was, I don't know, just much more aligned with with what I was looking for and, and sort of the same values I have about academia and, and why we're doing it. Um, I think just it was a much more... Uh, diverse I guess pool of leaders and I don't Mm. think a lot of the John Monashes would recognize themselves in the the leadership image that the Rhodes or other scholarships portray Um, and it did seem like the Monash was much more progressive in recognizing that people are leaders in their fields in lots of different ways and that can be you know much more introverted much more scientifically minded people who would just like to lead by doing what they're doing and doing it well um, rather than sort of the traditional. So it was, yeah, it was that. I was really impressed by by how diverse and how accepting the program seemed and, and how supportive it seemed of it. And so what would you do? Send off your application and <laughs> hope, hope for the best? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I didn't have much else to do, did I? Did anybody? <laughs> Nobody had much else to do. <laughs> Yeah, it was actually quite a terrifying time because I didn't have accommodation and I didn't have a job either. So I was just 
was I was a little bit homeless. I was just crashing. On people's <laughs> I hope you weren't on the streets, Lauren. No, but I was just crashing on people's floors, and I mean, it was pandemonium. Uh, this Australians mm. who could have gone home went home, but all the British people went back to their homes as well. So there was just a few internationals who were left in in Oxford, just like no idea what to do with ourselves, and. Um, so yeah, I wrote the application staying on on with friends or on their floors and I, I actually did all of the interviews either like in somebody's house on the floor or in an Airbnb. It was just I thought absolutely no way am I going to get it. I am just I just, I just could not. <laughs> yeah, who is this person? Yeah, everything is just stacked against me. I, I'm just yeah, but it it worked out and I kind of had a funny feeling when when I read the description. I thought, this this sounds bang on. I'm a chance here. Yeah. And how did you um obviously there's the application process and interviews and whatnot. How did you actually find out that you were successful? <laughs> when I was moving between house shares as well. And because of the time difference, they called me sort of like late in the night and kind of just wanted to speak to me and I was just so flustered. I had no idea who they were and I was like, I'm really busy. <laughs> just a huge sense of relief and I just couldn't believe how how happy I was that they'd sort of accepted me into into a program that I wanted to be sort of with those kind of people and I felt like a huge sense of of relief amazing so if, if we go back to your early studies you studied biomedicine and economics to me, that they seem like worlds apart. Maybe they are similar. I don't know. I'm keen. <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? I'm not. I, well, I did the biomed degree at Melbourne, and, and like I said, I, I couldn't stand the bodies. So I was told, this is, you mm. know, "Doctor is not for you." <laughs> You'll have to move on. <laughs> I know. I, I would have been a terrible doctor. So I took a gap year, and I travelled for a year, and volunteered, and backpacked, and went all over the world, just kind of you know, trying to find myself. Although I was quite young. I was only 19 when I graduated, so I was quite young. Um, and mm. sort of ended up reading a lot about what was behavioural economics was kind of like buzzing around. This was kind of the time. Of, Explain to us what that is. That's kind of like these books like Nudge and, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, all these kind of like ideas bringing psychology into economics and that was really hot around that time you know the economics Nobel Prize went to um, Kahneman Tversky for their work and everyone was just like thinking this it was going to explode and it was this crazy new field about human behavior and modeling it modeling it in a psychologically valid kind of way um, and so I thought yeah that sounds good I'll do that I'll do that I'll do that. Give like, that a go. No yeah, bodies what there. do I need to do that? I was like, oh, I need an economics degree. <laughs> so I was like, all right then, I'll do that. Um, and so I enrolled in it in Melbourne and I like I I overloaded. So I packed it into one year. I did like I overloaded summer school first term and second so I could do the degree. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> but like after after like a few months, I was like, uh I actually don't know if economics is for me, but I was in so deep. I was like, "You go, I've got to finish." I'm just yeah, get so I'm it. sitting in these lectures of like, you know, advanced macro talking about like, you know, stabilizing inflation rates, whatever. And I'm like, this is so far off what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
a role with it. Yeah. And, and my parents loved it because they're both economists and they just thought like, oh, she's finally seen the light. Yes. It's her calling. Yeah. And I've, I vow to never touch economics again. <laughs> Although I did, I did the um. MPhil, so I did another two years of it. Um, yeah, so that's what I wanted. I wanted to do behavioral economics. And so I applied for, I went back uh, traveling, went back to Sweden, and I applied for lots of masters, particularly focused on human behavior and behavioral economics and that kind of thing. Um, and I got them, but then I got a call from, I got a, you don't get a call from us, you get an email um, saying saying you've got in <laughs> to just the the plain MPhil in economics. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. I mean, you, you kind of get so enthralled in, in Oxford and it's produced by it. And then, you go, I've got to do yeah, this. What am and I, I doing? Thinking, like, yeah. How bad can it be? Like, I'm sure it, you know, there's a few modules of behavioral economics. I'm sure I can suck up the rest. Um, and it was hmm. absolutely the hardest, hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> really? And I absolutely really? hate economics. <laughs> You've got a master's in it. You studied in Sweden and Canada. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. I, I did two exchanges uh, in my undergrad, so to, to Sweden and to Canada. And then on, well, on my year of being kind of lost and looking for what I wanted to do, I went back to Sweden and did I think I did Swedish literature. I don't speak. I, it was, yeah, I was very lost, just trying to find what, what I wanted to do. I'm not an expert in Swedish literature, I must tell you. No, it's just Pippi Longstockings and a lot of crime. Yeah, they do make good crime thrillers, don't they? Netflix they is do. filled with. Yes, they love it. It's a very intriguing culture. And I think that time was so necessary to to find out what, what was right, I think. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I'd either be sitting here being a very bad doctor or a very unhappy economist. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you think you've landed now in the in the field that you were meant to be uh, in? Yeah, ab- absolutely. AI is like uh, it's just an unbelievable. I feel like I gush about this a lot, but it's an unbelievably challenging. Um, but exciting field. And especially as we work in like what's called neuro AI. So we're working as neuroscientists with brains and also with computers. It's, you know, it's, it's requiring a very high level of experimental skill. Um, The maths is a very high level. The coding is very quickly evolving and, and difficult, but what I like most about it is it also comes with a very strong, like philosophical challenge as well. And we are, Mm. always a confronting and coming up against really existential, really difficult questions. And it's not uncommon for people in our lab, even the PIs to every so often just kind of go through this phase of really like, it kind of hits you what we're doing. Um, and people kind of look off for like a few days. They're just having <laughs> yeah. a moment. Everyone, <laughs> everyone in the lab knows when someone's going through this existential phase and, and they'll get some extra ice cream or something. But, you know, no other field that I know of so frequently calls into question your existence and what you, what we are and, and what it means to be human. So it's a very, very challenging field in a lot of regards. Just Just on that... Are you able to potentially give an example of a circumstance where 
that existential crisis might occur? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we work with a lot of models in a field called reinforcement learning or, or RL, um, which is kind of mimicking how, how we think humans would learn, would learn certain things. Um, and so we're building models that would imitate or kind of approximate what humans and things do. And every so often the team will build a model that um, is, is actually really good at, at modeling, not only the neural responses, but also the behavioral responses of, of people trying to perform a task. Um, and when it does that really well and can sort of predict how you're going to respond, you just kind of get this phase of like, am I just one big RL model? Like, at, like, and then, and then you kind of get to this phase of like, which, which we had a long discussion actually with our supervisor about is like, well, what is like, what is the goal of neuroscience? What are we trying to do? Because if, if we do build, we get that model that we think actually, this is, this is a really good model of what the brain is doing. We think this might be what the brain is doing. Like, how, how are we going to swallow that? Like, this this is you. You are this model. Like, that's all you are. And it's people don't like that. We like to think that we're quite special and there's some sort of, you know, humans. We're different. We're special. But you're like, well, maybe we are just just this model and I'm just trying to optimize. We're in the yeah, matrix. Yeah, it's very um, humbling. I hope you're not working at Skynet long. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, let's fast forward if we, if we can to the end of 2025, and you have successfully gained your PhD. Big tick to you. What's the plan? Is there a plan? What's the future? Oh, what do you think? <laughs> I think um, I don't know. I can't. I think a lot of people I've spoken to have also had a similar experience. Whether that's been the pandemic. I think probably it has been the pandemic that, you know, previously when we were younger, starting up our careers, there was this enormous like drive and like urgency and, you know, like it, it's a competitive bunch of people, the John Monashes or the, you know, the Melbourne scholars, whoever they are, it's all very competitive driven groups of people always pushing for the next, you know, the next achievement. And I think, I think it was the pandemic just like taking that huge hit has kind of, I don't know, so a big made us take a much broader, longer perspective about what we're doing. Mm. And that sense of urgency from the people I know has definitely faded, which I think is a good thing in terms of being a bit mm. more sustainable. So I, I think people are maybe a bit, more reticent to make long-term plans as well so you know we just think you're right yeah exactly what's what is going to happen so i would say after the phd i'd like to work somewhere between um academia and, and industry for a while to get experience particularly our partners at DeepMind, um our partners at google um which gives kind of a new experience of science being done outside of academia, which is quite rare in neuroscience. You know, nearly all neuroscience is done in academia. Um, but to kind of gain an understanding of what's going on in these very hidden, very private organisations, um, and obviously with the view to take that back to Australia, but I think that's a very important piece of the puzzle because neuroscience is 
very clandestine and there's a lot of myths about AI and what's going on. So I think actually getting into some of those organizations and really seeing how they work and how they're doing their research is would be would be a next step. Amazing. Lauren, it's been fantastic catching up with you today. Thank you so much for your time. We wish you um, wish you well in your future studies and good luck back in the in the UK and safe travels tonight on the plane. I hope you managed to get some sleep well, on the flight. Thank you so much. It's Thank been you. lovely talking to you. All the best. Bye-bye.